Our patients are becoming more diverse. Are we prepared? Welcome to a special segment on ethics in medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Picker. And our guest today is Dr. James Webster. Dr. Webster is professor of medicine at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is also the executive director of the Institute of Medicine of Chicago and president of the Chicago Board of Health. Thank you very much, Dr. Webster, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. Glad to be here. What is cultural proficiency or competency? It is a relatively new concept, relatively new over the past decade or so, the idea that we should be able to relate to patients from different cultures, do it professionally and with the appropriate humanistic and medical skills that allow us to be comfortable and to make the patients comfortable, no matter whether they come from a different background than we were originally raised in. Does this have any effect on medical outcomes? Oh, absolutely. Patients who, for whatever reason, don't feel welcome in the setting where they're being treated, when they can't understand the reasons as well as the language that they are being dealt with, this is a huge problem and it adversely affects outcome. Just think of it yourself. I mean, if you can't understand why and how and what you're supposed to do, you're not going to follow the directions and adherence falls to Zippo and it's just a terrible problem, in many cases injuring the most vulnerable of our patients. So you would say that cultural proficiency leads to what we've been talking about so much in the press and in medical schools, the medical disparities that exist in minority groups in particular? Absolutely. Again, this is a problem because the quality of care given minorities in the country today is significantly worse than that given the general population. And if we want to improve quality, this is really low-hanging fruit. If we can improve the kind of care and outcomes that we get in minority and vulnerable populations, it really will make a huge difference in the overall health and productivity and everything else in our country today. Well, how do you go about dealing with this now that you've identified a problem? It's really an educational problem, and it builds on the education that health professionals have already gotten. Many of the more senior practitioners, both physicians and nurses and others who could care for patients, graduated at a time when this was not even recognized, much less made a priority. But they have the basic skills of communication and trust building that allow them to be successful in their practice. We just have to make sure that they understand how things look from the patient's perspective if the patient comes from a different culture than the one that the practitioner was raised in. Well, I know you're teaching in a medical school, a very fine medical school. How are you incorporating this into the curriculum of the medical students, actually before we get to people like you and I who have already been in practice for a while? They get a large exposure to this in their preclinical years, the first two years of medical school. It's really medical sociology, if you will, and they have, as part of their clinical skills development, they have formal direction of education to improve their cultural sensitivity, cultural competency, 
with lots of not only talking head lectures, but more importantly, a lot of role playing and small group education. I know that that takes place in all the medical schools in the Chicago region, and the studies nationally suggest that the vast, vast majority of medical schools in the country are doing the same thing, and nursing schools as well, I should add. So that I'm not concerned about the younger clinicians. I am, however, concerned uh, that you said those of us who are a little older do not have the appropriate attitudes and skill sets to make this happen. You know, I've often wondered how, and this certainly applies to myself, how can I always be sure that my patients in a minority group understand what I'm saying? Very often, they're embarrassed. They can't read. They nod as if they understand. You ask them, do they understand? They say yes. And then you'll find out that they're not able to read your instructions or may even be taking their medications incorrectly. Is there some tool that I could access that would somehow benefit my being sure that my patients really understand what I'm telling them? Well, you've identified a serious problem for all of us, if you will, not a nightmare, but certainly a concern that we all have with all patients. There are a lot of things that can be done. For example, taking the time to have a talk back is a great idea. When you're all done and the patient has nodded and smiled and everything, you say, now, please tell me exactly what you heard me say. What is the problem here? What's the disease or illness or whatever? What are my recommendations for you? Why do we want you to follow this diet, take this pill, do whatever, and see if they can repeat to you the information that you just gave them? And it's sometimes very embarrassing, at least for me, when I realize that we're 180 degrees out of phase. So talk back is a wonderful situation. And and also, open-ended questions. I mean, there are a whole lot of mnemonics and what have you that I won't go into here. But open-ended questions to find out what the patient's attitudes are, what they think is going on, etc., are just wonderful ways to undertake this. And I think it's important that, to understand that in this day of 12 or 15-minute visits, there's a lot going on. And there's good data that particularly for minority populations, a patient-centered medical home with a team approach where the physician provides leadership but has nurse practitioners, nurses, panel supervisors working with him or her is a great way because they can take the time that sometimes physicians don't have to really drill down and make sure that the patient understand what's going on and why and how and can do the things that sometimes we don't have time for. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special segment, Ethics and Medicine, on ReachMD XM 157, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and my guest is Dr. James Webster, Professor of Medicine at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, and we're talking about cultural competency and how it leads to disparities in healthcare, especially to minority groups. I know we've been talking about minority groups, but I thought about how often this happens in people with early dementia, who are another group of people who try to lead you astray, smile, nod, and act as if they're understanding your instructions. And probably some of the same tools that you might use with a minority group, you have to be very careful with demented patients, early dementia, and make sure that they talk back to you and give you an idea that they really do understand your instructions. 
I'm struck, too, although this isn't really what we were talking about, about Ron Davis, president of the AMA, who is fighting cancer of the pancreas. And he, as a patient, has started a program called Ask Me Three. And these are questions that patients should ask. What is my main medical problem? What do I need to do to improve my medical condition? And why a particular treatment is important. Now, in a group of minority groups and people who may or may not understand what you're saying, don't you think it's going to be hard for these patients to come back to you and ask these same three questions that Ron Davis is encouraging the medical community to hear in their office? I certainly agree. And there was a wonderful story about Dr. Davis in the New York Times, Science Times section. In any case, it is very difficult and it is hard for people who come from a different culture and a different tradition to be willing to, if you will, confront the physician. So again, it's important to make sure that they feel welcome in the environment that they're being seen. And they have to be encouraged with, as I said earlier, open-ended questions are a great way to start. But you have to ask those three questions of the patient if they don't volunteer this would be a wonderful way to start, as I said earlier, what's wrong, (laughs) what are we going to do about it, and why, and see what they can get back to you. But sometimes you have to make sure that they are empowered, if you will, to ask those questions and to make sure that you get the answers that are right. Now, as a geriatrician, certainly the same things I talked about, team care, are very important for the elderly. And it sort of also goes to the idea of a third person in the room who may be a family member with the elderly who will act as an advocate. In the case of the minority populations, particularly if English is not their first language or if they don't speak English at all, you're going to end up using a translator, which adds another dimension. But it's important, for example, when you're using a translator or an advocate for an older person, that you speak to the patient. You don't talk to the daughter who's in the room uh, for the elderly patient or the translator who is really a third party. You talk directly to the patient, and you, get, of course, get a lot of cues from them as well but from the nonverbal communication that you see them give, even if your language skills aren't very good. You know, you bring up an interesting point about translators. So often you have to, however, rely on a child. It could even be a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old whose first language is becoming English to help you. This really puts you in a difficult situation because there are certain subjects that might embarrass the parent, and yet here you have to rely on a child to get adequate medical history. Well, you're absolutely right, and we try, for example, in our uh, clinic where we see a number of Latino uninsured patients and what have you, we try never to use a child or a family member because uh, try and take a sexual history in front of a 10-year-old child and you're not going to get very far or if you're going to ask about abuse or whatever other sensitive questions come up. So it is absolutely essential if you can possibly avoid it not to use the family member but to get a real translator who, again, you have to explain or have the translator explain to the patient why they're there and who they are and that it is confidential, et cetera, et cetera. There's good data that it changes the interaction, the clinical interaction to have a third person in the room. But unless you're terribly fluent, and most of us, I know I do, overestimate our language skills so that 
I think I'm a lot more competent in Spanish than I really am. So I never try to do anything that's really important for a small talk, for taking a history, and maybe doing the physical, maybe I can get by all right. But when we get down to really the nitty-gritty, the, the three questions and the other things you were talking about a moment ago, it really is important that you have someone who is really good at the uh, language that the patient uses. I want to thank Dr. James Webster, who's been our guest today, and we've been talking about this increasing problem of disparities among minority groups in particular. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MDXM-157. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Raymond Scalatar in Washington, D.C. I'm the medical advisor to the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, and it's a pleasure to be part of ReachMD, XM-157, the channel for medical professionals.